This is Father Gregory Pine. This is Father Patrick Briscoe. And this is Father Bonaventure Chapman. And welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. So, we're joining you here through the wonders of the internet for another installment of our Lent Lexio series as we wind down the Lenten season. If we haven't mentioned it to this point on an earlier Lexio episode, we're going to actually continue through the season of Easter, uh, but instead of covering the Sunday readings, this is our custom, we're actually going to cover the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. So you can start getting excited now, two weeks in advance, so that way you will be sufficiently prepared when the time comes. Uh, but in order to wind up this holy season, we're reflecting a little bit on the fact that um, beginning on Palm Sunday and leading through Easter Sunday, it's a kind of intense liturgical experience in religious life, in the parish, where have you. Uh, but certainly at DHS, there's a lot of hijinks that goes on. Some of it's intentional, but most of it is unintentional. So, um, Father Patrick, uh, would you care to share one of your favorite Holy Week liturgical fails? Oh, gosh. Um... I, the the one that the one that I will share, I have to admit that I I was involved in, was a little I would call it over ambition as regards the construction of the Easter Vigil fire. So at the time, the fire had been confined to a small Weber grill, you know, like a little charcoal one with plastic wheels, and uh, I think the idea was that if we had a smaller container, there would be a smaller fire. Um, and some of us friars got the idea that it would be really cool if we burned the Advent candles in the Easter Vigil fire, which is poetic, you know, in a reverent way to destroy them. Uh, what we did not realize, <laughs> however, was that the Advent candles that we purchase, when they start to melt, are reduced to a paraffin liquid. <laughs> and so as, the, as this fire was burning in the Weber grill, the liquid was draining out these Advent candles <laughs> being reduced to essentially lighter fluid and they were catching on fire you know fire was raining out the bottom of the grill that caught the wheels of the grill on fire and the grill started to tip over because the wheels were plastic uh a certain science friar who teaches at the angelicum whose identity will be protected for the integrity of this episode said oh i know i'll get some water <laughs> sprayed it with a hose and made it angrier you know so the whole thing was exploding like a blazing inferno but luckily, Father Joseph Anthony came to our aid. He was born for this moment of glory. He grabbed a fire extinguisher from the from the cloister walk. He came out in the cloister garden and shouted as he pulled the pin to me, hold my kappa, <laughs> and started to attack the fire with the fire extinguisher. So we finally get this thing under control, and it's like a measly, pathetic blaze by the time we, we get the people out for the beginning of the liturgy. And one of the sisters... Uh, our beloved Dominican sisters said, I thought they had a good fire at the Easter Vigil. <laughs> Savage. So that's mine. What a well, gift. That was a gift. Father Bonaventure, say, have you experienced any liturgical hijinks? Yeah, I want to say um, uh, before that, though, uh, we, we're going to brand uh, Hold My Kappa. That's the Dominican mm. version of Hold My Beer. Uh, so um, there'll be shirts <laughs> right. for this. There'll be uh, There'll be cups beer mugs this sort of thing so just be ready for merch just look out for merch for maybe little stickers you can put on your <laughs> bottles and kappa. such hold my kappa hold my kappa i'm going in that kind of thing i, I like that a lot uh liturgical things uh if you the one i remember i'll just this would be self uh you know self 
uh, denigrating, I suppose, is um, during the Holy Weeks, we have lots of, yeah, lots of intense liturgies and you sometimes you're tired. Um, and we had, sometimes we, we had a lot more Latin, you could say, the liturgies and we love our Latin. It's no big deal. It's great. Um, but the morning after uh, Easter Vigil and such, um, no one's quite there in the same way. We've been partying for a while. And I was the cantor, I believe, on that, that morning for morning prayer. And we had, there's, in, normally we do the, uh, so the Canticle of Zechariah and the Canticle of, uh, of, of Mary at the evening prayer, but the morning prayer. And I looked at this and it, it, the Benedictus, it, it, the whole Latin text was there. And I couldn't remember whether we were supposed to or whether we knew how to do the Latin, whether we ever sang the Latin of that, because we sang the Magnificat, the Latin of that, and the evening prayer a lot. And I thought, oh, of course we know this one too. Uh, false. Very, very much false. And the thing is, the Canticle of Zechariah is very long. It is not It is not short, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, it's not the creed, but it's not short. And so after the first verse, I realized as I intoned it that we did not know this, that we had not done this before. Um, and so Latin took, well, let's just say it got some cool pronunciations that morning. Um, and, uh, and you, as a student brother, it's exciting because you look across at your formator and you, you can see the future. You can see that there is going to be a discussion with a certain man, maybe more than one, uh, that will not be for, soon forgotten. And that's the only way you learn anyway. So, um, that's my, yeah, Benedictus, collapse of Benedictus at morning prayer. I'm not sure if anyone remembers that, but that's, that's mine. Nice. Well, in classic St. Therese fashion, I might just go for a, for a twofer. So there's the one where you and I were cancers on Good Friday. And uh, oh, I would say this. Oh, yeah. I, I would say that you're a good singer. And I would say that I'm a middling singer who sometimes gets away with singing whilst alone, provided that there's no background music. Because if so, I'm going to be at least a quarter tone, probably a, like a half tone flat. Um, but fortunately, the, the tune was like a kind of angry pirate ship tune. So we were forced to practice it any number of times mm. and we delivered the goods for the responsorial song that was. But then you were chanting the gospel. You were one of the three members of like the Scola who were performing as it were, or, you know, singing the gospel according to St. John. And so you went up towards the sanctuary and you left me at the Ambo so that I could sing the very, very humble gospel acclamation. But um, <laughs> I was just, <laughs> I was so overwhelmed by the fact that I didn't know what I was doing and that I hadn't rehearsed it that I just, um, I just started making stuff up again. But it was one of those moments where you look around and everyone in the chapel is just like simultaneously pitting you and hating you. I was like, I, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to ruin this moment either, which was, which was a heartbreaker for me. Um, but then the other one was Father Patrick, you and I were cooking Easter meal, the Easter meal. So like we got up at whatever o'clock and had mass at dawn. And then we started cooking at 647 made up time. Um, so we had already been cooking for a couple hours once the community convened for their mass. And you had volunteered to participate in a brass quartet, I think, who was supposed to bring in the Easter solemnity with solemnity. And uh, you, disappeared at a, <laughs> you disappeared at a certain point after having been cooking, I don't know what, for like the past four hours. So you were, yeah, I would say wrist deep in the ingredients of our forthcoming meal. You left, you came Total back seven minutes zombie. later. Total zombie. <laughs> you, you came back, uh, you know, seven minutes later and was like, hey, how'd it go? And you said something to the effect of, it went. Also, it may or may not have sounded like a bunch of drunk Muppets. <laughs> oh, it did. I was there. It absolutely did. Uh, so I can neither confirm nor deny as to the goods itself, but to experience it from a distance was a great joy for me. Ooh. Okay. 
Having reined that in, let's turn now to the readings for this Palm Sunday. And uh, to bring it in, we'll start with the Collect of the Mass. Let us pray. Almighty ever-living God, who as an example of humility for the human race to follow, caused our Savior to take flesh and submit to the cross, graciously grant that we may heed his lesson of patient suffering and so merit a share in his resurrection, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, Father Patrick, would you take us into the first reading? A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Lord God has given me a well-trained tongue, that I might know how to speak to the weary a word that will rouse them. Morning after morning he opens my ear that I may hear, and I have not rebelled, have not turned back. I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked my beard. My face I did not shield from buffets and spitting. The Lord God is my help, therefore I am not disgraced. I have set my face like flint, knowing that I shall not be put to shame. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I am personally consoled by the fact that this word is a word addressed to the weary, not only because I myself am weary, uh, but because I have a new appreciation for the weariness of humanity. Um, you like for however many of the last years living in the United States, people talk about the new evangelization and you're like, what need is there for a new evangelization? We just keep going from strength to strength. There's all kinds of energy and entrepreneurial spirit and people are doing sweet things and there are all kinds of cool apostolates, dot, dot, dot. And then I moved to Europe <laughs> and um, things changed. And I, I have never encountered a kind of ecclesial weariness like unto the ecclesial weariness, which I have encountered here. I will not state a place. It may or may not start with a and end with an Itzerland. Um, but it, it makes sense to me why St. John Paul II called for a new evangelization. Because I think not only is it an announcement of the good news to those who have already heard and maybe moved past the proclamation of the gospel, but it's specifically addressed to those who are weary of it, maybe antipathetic towards it. They might even just hate it. Uh, there have been a few encounters in the past couple of weeks where just by virtue of the fact that I was a religious or a priest, people were like, let me vent my spleen. And I was like, fascinating. What are the chances I respond well to this? Probably zero. Um, but the good news is that our Lord gives us himself and he gives us himself specifically as the suffering servant. And so we have here the third servant song and the Lord says, I give myself to it, right? I give myself to the injustice of it. I give myself to the horror of it so that I can transform it from the inside out. Not in that I'm going to like teach you cute virtue lessons like, yeah, submit to injustice. So that way you can grow in humility. It's not just that. It's that we have in that an opportunity, a privileged place of encounter with our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for love of us. And so I think that's that's an essential feature of our proclamation of the gospel in certain corners, is that we're willing to suffer for love of him who suffered for us, and that that is best suited to commend the gospel to their, yeah, to those hearers um, who might not otherwise receive it in any other way. In this uh, suffering servant song of uh Isaiah, we have Israel, of course, but fulfilled in Christ. That's the real suffering servant pointed to. We find a, a disagreement about what to do and what is done with tongues. It's a sort of tongue battle, you could say. The Lord has a well-trained tongue, 
that he uses to speak to the weary, a word of comfort that will rouse them. The Christ's words are indeed words of comfort, words that build up, they encourage, they redeem. It's whenever you're in trouble, whenever I'm losing my way a bit, I can pick up the gospel and hear the words of Christ, and they're, they're encouraging words. They're words that give life, because of course he is the word that gives life. But what about our tongues? How do we use our words and tongues? Isaiah says, my face I did not shield from buffets and spitting. Our tongues, it seems, instead of the tongue of the, of the suffering servant, are used as weapons. Not directly used against Christ, I hope, for the most part, but indirectly as we direct viciousness towards those whom he loves, those whom he has called to himself, those who he considers his body. In a sense, we fill up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ, in the best sense, by receiving and sharing suffering with him. But we also fill it up sometimes with our tongues as we pile it on. That's the wrong way. So what to do? How to heal this well-trained tongue? Well, St. Faustina offered the antidote, of course, prayer for help to speak rightly. She said, Help me, O Lord that my tongue may be merciful, so that I should never speak negatively of my neighbor, but have a word of comfort and forgiveness for all. Throughout the Psalms, we pray repeatedly lines that are similar to this one. Your face, O Lord, do I seek, hide not your face. So the psalmist, again and again and again, is desiring the face of God. It's one of the great themes of the Psalms, and it's a line that we pray, but we pray the Liturgy of the Hours over and over and over again. Similarly, a friend who is a pastor in a major city is planning two murals for his church. The one mural is going to be the wedding feast of Cana to preach the truth about marriage to a world that does not recognize it, which is pretty epic. And the second mural, he wants to be Christ standing before Pontius Pilate for the famous moment where Pilate's at, representing the famous moment where Pilate asked the Lord what is truth. And the face of truth is there before Pilate, of course, looking him in the, looking him, you know, in the eyes, seeing, he's seeing him face to face. How many times though have we seen the face of the Lord and responded the way that the aggressors uh, of the suffering servant respond? You know, not only are we desiring to seek the face of God, but sometimes when we do see the face of God, we respond not with joy, not with appreciation. You know, we're not always like Pilate, not recognizing the face before us, but sometimes we resist the face uh, of God uh, when, he, when he reveals himself to us. And we allow the Lord uh, instead to be buffeted, where we, instead of rejoicing and seeing his face, uh, subject the face of the Lord uh, to further shame. So as we continue uh, this Holy Week, let us pray then for clear-sightedness, that we might see the face of God. And instead of piling on further shames when the Lord was rejected, that we might continue to welcome him to our own hearts. Okay, we can turn now to the second reading, which is taken from the letter of St. Paul to the Philippians. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, and found human in appearance, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because of this, 
God greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This great Pauline hymn of humility, uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, which is so familiar to all of us, I hope, is one of the most beautiful passages in all scripture, I would say. But even more beautiful is the man of humility, the referent of the hymn itself, Christ. For as beautiful as these words are, and the sentiments involved, they are nothing but poetry without the referent himself, without Christ, without the being true of these words about this man. It's not just an aspiration or a nice vision, it's a description of this man. The hymn is an aspiration and inspiration to us because he is actually described in it. It's not a fine piece, but an invitation to know him who it is about. We love this hymn not be then, therefore, because of what it does in us, makes us feel good, but who it brings us to. It draws us directing our minds and then our hearts to this God of ours who did not deem his own nature as something to be exploited, but rather his nature to be something handed over to the Father for us. And therefore, the referent of this hymn becomes not only Christ, but hopefully, who is the obedient one, most completely us, as we transform ourselves with him through his grace, so that we might in some way be humble servants as he is. So we let this hymn describe not only the God-man, that's not just what Paul was interested in as well, he wanted to describe us, that we as fellow humble servants offer ourselves to our Father because of his humility, and that we gain, therefore, ours. So I'd like to go the complete opposite direction, and rather than talk about humility, talk about exaltation, because here at the end of this, this hymn of praise, which is, of course, as Father Bonaventure has said, uh, has lauded Christ's humility, we get a sense of the regal nature of Christ. And, of course, one of the points of tension uh, throughout Holy Week, something that all of us have, uh, come face to face with is the reality that there are so many who do not recognize Christ's kingship, uh, who do not praise Christ as Lord, who not who do not bend their knee to him, who do not revere his holy name, do not recognize the power that he has in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And that is a that is a that is a cause for concern. It's the motive of our uh, of evangelization efforts. It's the, the driving force which compels us to speak of the name of Jesus and all of the things that the Lord has done for us. It motivates us, but also all of this language of exaltation, this regal language, uh, should give us some consolation that we know in the end that Christ is the one who has already won the victory and that his name is always to be praised. Boom. All right. Well, it's time, uh, a, a time that always arrives in every Alexio episode for an obscure theological point, which reflects what I have just been writing in my dissertation. So at the time of recording, I've just finished my last chapter, which is sweet. I expected it to feel better, but instead I feel a similar emptiness in a new way. Um, but the last two chapters that I wrote touched on this theme of both 
humility and exaltation and actually the correspondence between the two. So here we go. Let's try to let's try to draw ting, draw draw things together there. I'm going to dedicate that line to Father Cullen Mannion. Um, but um, to, to kind of link up the humility piece and the exaltation piece. St. Thomas will say that in his earthly life, our Lord merits, but once he dies, he no longer merits for us because he's no longer a wayfarer. He's no longer on the way towards the fulfillment of the promises. He's in the possession of the promises in their plenitude, but that we can see certain things that happen after his death as connected organically to things that went before. And so he'll say, for instance, we see um, these kind of like a fourfold humiliation at the end of his life. So his passion and his death, and then his burial, and then the mockery and scorn that he endured, and then his descent into hell. And then he'll say that it corresponds to a fourfold exaltation, which, which transpires, you know, after or with his rising from the dead. So to the first corresponds his resurrection, to the second corresponds his ascension, to the third corresponds his receiving the name above all names, and to the fourth, his sitting at the right hand of the Father and exercising judicial power, which is beautiful. I mean, just the association between the two is beautiful. But I think that, I mean, the simple point is that there is a correspondence between the humility and the exaltation, and that it's, we go by way of the humility to the exaltation, but it's not an exaltation that would, what, arrogate all praise to oneself just because he's an egomaniac, because he's not. Notice how this ends. It's to the glory of God the Father. So it's a profoundly Trinitarian movement. The kind of V shape of this hymn is that you descend so as to ascend, and in ascending, Christ leads us up with him so that we can recover our Godward gaze and ultimately be reconstituted as sons and daughters, you know, looking to the Father for the fulfillment of the promises which are already accomplished in Christ. So with that, let's turn to the gospel. And for the gospel, we're going to read the passage which begins the liturgy uh, as part of the solemn procession of this Passion Sunday. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. When Jesus and the disciples drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you, immediately you will find an ass tethered, and a colt with her. Untie them, and bring them here to me. And if anyone should say anything to you, reply, The master has need of them. Then he will send them at once. This happened so that what had been spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Say to daughter Zion, Behold, your king comes to you, meek and riding on an ass, and on a colt, the foil of an beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had ordered them. They brought the ass and the colt and laid their cloaks over them. He sat and he sat upon them. The very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and strewn them, strewed them on the road. The crowds preceded him and those following kept crying out and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken and asked, Who is this? And the crowds replied, This is Jesus, the prophet, from Nazareth in Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I have not yet had a chance to visit Jerusalem, the holy city. Uh, but I do know that the Mount of Olives is part of the mountains that surround the city. It's the division. It, it protects the city from the desert. And the Mount of Olives is where the Garden of Gethsemane is located. From my understanding, the garden is at the base of the Mount of Olives. 
So what we have here is an important foreshadowing for, for what's going to come later in Holy Week. So Christ leaving the Mount of Olives to enter the royal city uh, here on Palm Sunday. He does so with great exultation, with joy to welcome the crowds. And then, of course, as um, he goes forth from the Mount of Olives to his death, he is met not with uh, celebration and exultation, but with resistance uh, and all of all of the other anger and animosity and enmity of the crowds as he's being led out to be crucified. Okay, but it begins in both places, both the glorious entrance into Jerusalem and the departure for his passion begins uh, at the Mount of Olives, you might say. Uh, there's a second kind of symbol here, which is very quiet, which is worth meditating on this week, which is that the the olives, in order uh, to be most useful, have to be pressed, right? Um, they're, they're, that, that, that's where the beautiful oil comes from. And there's something about the passion of where we can see this, this kind of action taking place in Christ's life, where he's just pressed, where everything is squeezed out of him, where the Lord gives forth his whole life. In addition to this uh, visceral action, um, this... This, this work of the passion, this offering. Um, olives play another role insofar as Christ is anointed several times with oil during this week, um, first at the house of Bethany, and then his sacred body will be anointed um, as he's prepared for burial with oil or spices or nard. So, so here I'm having a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of fun with the symbolic interpretation, but we can see in the Mount of Olives, the place, the sign of the olives, foreshadowings of all that's going to come. So one thing that I'm struck by is that our Lord goes to his death willingly. Um, so our Lord is not surprised by the events recorded in the gospel narratives. Uh, rather, he foresees them and he embraces them. And almost like a museum curator who has a sense for where everything is in the building and is able to kind of lead you through the experience with a kind of narrative integrity, so too the Lord. He sends his disciples ahead, you know, to prepare the supper. You know, he gives indication that there's going to be these animals tied up. You're going to bring them to me. He goes in, he hears the cries of the crowd, but he knows that behind those cries are the crucify him, crucify him of just a few days future. And it's to the point where, you know, even as, he is crucified and hangs on the cross. It's not as if death catches him unawares. The fact that he lets out this loud cry at the end, a lot of the fathers of the church read that passage and they say, you don't give out loud cries when you're dying of asphyxiation. You do that when, as the only begotten son of God in human flesh, you show the fact that you have embraced what lies in store. And so I think that, you know, a lot of people you know, like a lot of us in the 21st century, we were looking for organic ways to follow our Lord Jesus in his passion, death and resurrection. and um, we realize that, you know, there are two basic options or two poles to the spectrum. One is the wholesale embrace of modernity, whilst trying to convince ourselves that we're being charitable and compassionate, but realizing that we've actually just lost all sense of self. And then the other end of the spectrum is to be a complete and absolute troll, right? To never have a conversation with another human being on account of the fact that they could debase uh, your otherwise pristine discipleship. And so we're all, we're all rec like trying to reckon with the difficulty of living in between. Uh, but I think that it's helpful to recognize that we know how this ends. <laughs> We're going to die. And the Lord has given us what it takes to be competent in this progress or in this march towards Calvary. We're going to die in a hill. 
and we might have some say in which hill we die on, and we don't want to make a grand gesture which will amount to nothing and change no minds and hearts. We want to do something which will make of our lives meaningful, purposeful testimony, uh, but we know how it ends. So I think that takes some of the bite or some of the sting that fear would otherwise bring to bear because we've seen it, and that gives us the wherewithal, that gives us the strength to follow him who has gone before us. In my Protestant days, one of the important activities that you did intellectually was to solve scriptural puzzles, to find out and how to solve certain tensions in the text, you could say, Gospels and otherwise. Um, as you become, when I became Catholic, you realized that any good ideas I had were almost always found by some church father 1,700 years beforehand. Uh, nothing, not surprising that people prayed a lot and read the scriptures a lot back in the day uh, would come up with things better than you would. Uh, although I have to say this particular passage, I don't remember, although I'm sure um, there is someone who's come up with this, the solution to the, to the interesting part about this passage about the donkey and the ass. Um, because Matthew has a detail in this triumphal procession that no one, the other Gospels don't have. Of course, they, all, they have two. You have to bring uh, an ass and a colt uh, that Jesus is going to go in procession with. But Matthew says they brought the ass and the colt and laid their cloaks over them, and he sat upon them. Dear listeners, it won't you weary you with the Greek there, but that them that he sat upon refers to the donkeys, the two of them, not the cloaks. Um, it's not important how we get there. But that means that according to Matthew, he's sitting on two animals. He's straddling them. It seems almost impossible, at least undignified, and it seems painful to think about. Um, the other Gospels don't have this. He's just writing one of them. Why in the world does Matthew do this? Well, it's not because Matthew's crazy. It's because this is what Matthew does in a lot of his accounts. He doubles things. So blind men, he doubles. Demoniacs, he doubles. Here, he doubles animals. Why? Because Matthew's Gospel is written to, to Jews. It's written to people who know the Scriptures. They know in Deuteronomy that when someone is being witnessed to, it's only to be believed on the witness of two or three. So Matthew frequently, when Jesus is revealing some identity, he doubles the witnesses involved in that. What's striking here is that he's doubled animals. He's doubled actually the donkeys here that Jesus is witnessing to. What it's saying is that when Jesus proceeds to, the, to Jerusalem, to this event of Calvary, we've got a cosmic significance going on here. It's a creational significance, that the creation that's being subject to frustration, as Paul talks about in Romans, is now moving to find its redemption on this event on the cross. Even the animals are proclaiming this man. What are they proclaiming? They're proclaiming this. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And with that, let us pray. Look, we pray, O Lord, on this your family, for whom our Lord Jesus Christ did not hesitate to be delivered into the hands of the wicked and submit to the agony of the cross, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Okay, well, thanks, as always, for listening to God's Planning. Uh, if you have it in your heart to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, please do so. If you don't, then don't. Um, like the episode, subscribe on YouTube or your podcast app, leave a five-star review. Uh, we encourage five-star reviews, which makes special mention of how awesome Father Patrick is. Um, they play well. Uh, if you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, follow the link in the description or the show notes. 
Um, also, uh, you're going to find announcements. Well, you've been hearing announcements for the past month about our upcoming All Comers Retreat, which is to take place outside of Philadelphia at Malvern Retreat House the weekend of June 16th through 18th. So you can find applications for that retreat at godsplanning.org, and you can just follow the link in the episode description or show notes. So we're really hoping to see you there. And we've had generous donations at our last appeal at the end of last year, so as to reduce the cost of that to make it more accessible. So we're really hoping to meet a lot of our listeners and form more solid relationships, which would otherwise just go by way of the internet. So yes, very much looking forward to seeing you there. Also in the show notes and episode description, you'll find links for merchandise. The Hold My Kappa uh, merchandise is not yet available, but stay tuned, stay posted. All right, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on God's Plan. Mm-hmm.